Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters. I'm Charlotte, the Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. On today's episode of Leukemia Chatters, we chatted to Dan Chapman, a CML patient who received his diagnosis in 2015. We talked to Dan about the impact of his shock diagnosis, the challenges he's taken on since those days, and how it is living seven years down the line with a chronic leukemia. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us. Talking about your story and your experiences since your diagnosis in 2015 with CML. So in those days, how did things start off for you? I was in the British Army at the time. Um, I'd been in since uh, 2006. So um, I knew my body quite well. We did a lot of exercise. And yeah, to cut a long story short, um, I started uh, exercising a little bit more because I was putting on a bit of weight. And I was going out for runs with a, a good friend of mine. And he without telling me straight away, noticing slight differences in me, I was losing quite a lot of weight. Um, my appetite had gone um, quite low. I wasn't eating very much. Uh, and we went on one particular run and I started throw, throwing up bile. And my whole army crew had never thrown up. Although I'd been very close, I'd, I'd actually never done that. So it was quite noticeable. Uh, and he advised me to go and see the MO, which is the medical officer, which is essentially a GP. Um, so I did, I took the advice and I booked an appointment and on that appointment, um, I explained what had been going on, the the sort of symptoms, but what I didn't realize is I'd had quite a lot of symptoms going on at this point. Um, so I was fatigued, um, which I just thought I was tired. It's a busy job. Uh, I've mentioned throwing up bile that had happened a couple of times in the mornings, but I just, thought I maybe had a chesty cough, phlegm, I don't know. Uh, night sweats. Um, it was August, so I just put that down to being quite hot. Um, I was cramping and later found out that I had a bit of gout, which was dealt with quite quickly. So I was having severe um, cramps in my calves mainly, which were waking me at night. But again, I just put all this down to exercise, stress, tiredness. Um, and then... I noticed this was when I noticed when I went to see the MO that I had a swollen tummy. I was quite bloated. And this turned out to be actually my spleen was enlarged quite significantly. Um, I didn't know this at the time. It was I just thought, okay. So the MO advised me to go for a blood test. Thought this is routine. Okay, I'll go for a blood test, um, which was the next day. And I find this quite funny. I know um others kind of think okay this this can't be answered but anyway i'll tell you the story um i went for the blood test and the nurse that took my blood i i just jokingly said oh how does it look um and she's and what i meant was she's just she held the bile up and i said how does it look obviously you cannot tell by looking at blood whether there is anything wrong with it but she just jokingly said but yeah it looks fine um obviously we later find out that it isn't but I always remember that because it was just, I was so unaware that I had something serious going on. I just thought it was routine. Um, I then, if I remember rightly, it was a Tuesday and on the Wednesday, I used to go swimming with my friend um, on a Wednesday afternoon. So I had the blood test on the Tuesday and we went to work on Wednesday and then we went to swimming after work. Um, 
when I was obviously in the pool, I didn't have a mobile phone on me. Um, and we was in the pool for an hour or so. And I got out of the pool and I had lots of missed calls. And when I say lots, about over 10. Um, so I then checked, I had three or four voicemails. Uh, the four, first voicemail was something along the lines of, hi, it's the nurse from the uh, medical office. If you get the opportunity, can you come and see us tomorrow? We want to discuss the findings of the blood test. The next voice I said, um, hi, yeah, if you could give us a call so we can arrange to see you later today, that'd be great. Bearing in mind, this is now past 5 p.m. So anyone that works past 5 p.m., there's something going on. Then the next voice uh, was along the lines of, can you come and see us now? And then the fourth was, yeah, you need to come and see us as soon as possible. The GP, sorry, the MO is going to wait. So I went straight to the medical office and I remember this like it was yesterday. Uh, he looked worried. So I sat down and he says, I'm just going to let you know there's been a findings in your blood test that we suspect you have leukemia. And it was just point blank in that. And I, I, I was just more in shock. And I, I remember turning around and saying, well, what's leukemia? <laughs> um, I kind of had an idea, but I said, is it the big C? Uh, and he says, yes. And I just remember breaking down. Um, didn't feel great, obviously. Um, he did, I do remember him saying, I've got a hospital appointment the next day, um, the local hospital. Um, so by that, I knew it was quite serious. Obviously, the, the 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 speed in which they've done the blood test, they've got the results and they wanted to see me and now I've got a hospital appointment. I remember leaving the, uh, the MO and I just sort of broke down. Uh, my friend and another friend were there to meet me. They knew it was quite serious, um, obviously with me being called in to go and see the medical officer. And yeah, it was just... I was sad, scared, anxious, worried. I didn't sleep that evening because obviously I was thinking about the appointment the next day. Went into the appointment and met the specialist. And then we went for a um, bone, aspir uh, bone marrow aspiration or biopsy. Um, that's quite, for those that have had one of those or experienced that, it's, I wouldn't say painful, it's... Um, uncomfortable. So for those that don't know, obviously they extract bone marrow and then they go in your pelvic bone, probably the largest bone that they can get into. And they use this big needle and a, a manual drill. And yeah, it's quite, uh, it sounds quite scary, but it isn't painful. It's just uncomfortable. Uh, and yeah, and from that, it was confirmed. Um, a few days later, I went back to the hospital and then we had to talk um, treatment. Thank you for sharing that those details with me, Dan. Um, and it sounds like for you, you were living a normal, you kind of your average day-to-day -day life. You were in the pool and then this diagnosis came so out of the blue for you. And jumping back, remember that the symptoms that you listed, for example, I think you, you yourself mentioned that you wrote them off as something more everyday, more benign, and something that kind of didn't need to be worried about as much. Yeah, so... Just to put into perspective why I was just writing it off as um, stress and stuff, I actually was commuting every single weekend um, five hours back to home. So I was doing a Friday afternoon five hours drive and then Sunday early morning a five-hour drive back. And I was doing this every week. So I was 
expected to be tired. I was expected to be a little bit stressed. I was expected to have all these sort of, not in the severity that they were, but that's what I was putting it down to. Um, and the weight loss you mentioned, was that noticeable in your day-to-day life? How did that appear? Yeah, with the weight loss, um, I didn't really see the weight loss. Um, but having looked back at photos around the time it was happening, it's very. I look very poorly. Um, I'm very pale, dark eyes. Um, weight of loss was clear on my face. So I didn't, although I didn't see it because it, it was probably gradual, but others clearly see that. No, I think it's it's quite natural for you to write off those symptoms as something more every day and not to assume the worst out of them. But thankfully, in your situation, you had a friend who noticed these changes in you and flagged them with you. And I can only assume that now you're you're so grateful that they that they did that for you. And uh, yeah, that friend, um there was other things he did that day. Um at that time, I was living, like I say, five hours away from home and back home was my then wife and children. He then picked, drove me all the way to pick them up, to drive all the way back that evening. So we were all there ready for my hospital appointment, which not many friends would do. Um, that's a 10 hour road trip. And he also, I wanted to call and he said, no, no phone call. You say this to her face, you, 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 you're there together and you go through that. And, and I will always hold that friend quite close to my heart. Um, being, we were, were both now out of the army. We live total opposite ends of the country. I may speak to him two, three times a year, but he's the one, but he, he saved my life. Essentially. That's the way I see it. He noticed the symptoms. He told me to go and see the doctor. And then we could call it the aftercare, but he just see it as doing what was right. And it was amazing, honestly. No, that's amazing to hear that you had that support when you needed it at the time in those days and that he was he was there and, and able to provide you with this advice and this, this support that you needed at that time. And from what you've said, it sounds like the speed of your diagnosis in particular, it sounds like that had such a, such a rapid escalation for you in those days. I think the speed, sorry, was because I was in what was the blast phase, which is the later stages. Because um, I think now I'm sure there are people out there that will know the the professional terms or whether it's actually, I, I vaguely remember they was thinking I had acute myeloid leukemia, which um because of the test that they did pre uh, before it was confirmed that they basically suspected AML, but it was later confirmed that it was CMR. I, I vaguely think that's what was going on, but I certainly remember them mentioning blast phase, which is it, there's three stages to CML. Um, yeah, I think I, I, when, if I remember rightly, when I was going to see the specialists, um, it was a lot, it's really blurry because I was just so in shock and affected by every time I went to an appointment, they were quite frequent at first. It's just very vague because there were so many big medical terms used and yeah, it was, it's quite blurry with what was actually said, but I am where I am now. 
and you touched on it earlier, when you first heard the word leukemia, what did it mean to you? What, what did you know? What was your prior level of knowledge about it? I'll be very honest. When I heard the word leukemia, the image I see was a sick child. And I don't know why, um, but yeah, I'd never, no friends, family or, or anyone that I knew close had ever, 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 ever been diagnosed with leukemia. So it wasn't common knowledge to myself. But as soon as I heard the word, I just had an image of a sick child. Um, I don't know why. Um, no, I think you're very right there. I think there is this misconception amongst the public that's quite common about leukemia being this childhood cancer and that it only affects children really but um it's quite in, in interesting because i actually found out that cml is quite common with older people although at any age you can obviously be diagnosed but the the, the research was that it was over 40s i believe that were this is in the uk um but actually when what I did use to help me understand CML was Leukemia Care's website. Um, and I know I've mentioned it to you previously, but I wouldn't call them idiot guides, but there are certainly um, documents and booklets that sort of gave me, um, it was easier reading than using these large medical words and, yeah, no, I found that quite helpful to sort of understand CML more. And now I would still be quite honest and don't know the real depth, ins and outs of what CML, why it's called. I just know I'm living with it and I understand it enough to understand why I'm taking the medication and why I'm telling you my story, basically. And you touched on it earlier. There, There is a real learning curve especially in those early days of getting to grips with hematology and the technicality and the science and the jargon in yeah. a lot of ways that comes with that so it's great to hear that you found those booklets from us and the leukemia care website and hopefully that kind of managed to and hopefully that managed to cut through the jargon for you yeah definitely because i i did request uh, a few copies and I gave them out to my friends and family just so they could understand it a little bit more um, because it was it was great obviously talking about it but at first I didn't really want to and trying to explain to everybody individually that this is what's happening uh, it was easier just to say here's a booklet have a read any questions ask me Leukemia Care's informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you whether that be the current news in COVID, the latest developments in treatment, and much more. You can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike, providing insight on all things leukaemia. Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website. Or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. Especially concerning your initial reaction to the cancer diagnosis, the leukemia diagnosis, that's never easy news to hear. But when did you come more to terms with the chronic nature of your diagnosis and what that would mean for you? It still took a while to understand, if I'm honest, because during this time of diagnosis, a few months later, I moved back to where my family were. 
And I then changed hospitals. I then met my new um, hematology hematology consultant, who is still the same consultant today. So she's known me for uh, almost seven years, I'd say. Um, so it's not not long. August twenty fifteen, I was diagnosed. So yeah, um, and I think it was the first six to eight months that were really the most difficult adjusting and during those first six to eight months was when I was adjusting to a lot of change rather than just the CMO diagnosis, moving back home. Changing. I was in the army, so I had to change units. I was, I was home on sick leave. So yeah, there was a lot of adjustments. Um, but with, with, with the um, idea of how I was going to be continuing, it was sort of explained really well by the hospital this is the education that you'll be taking. This is what we'll do. That we'll, we'll have regular appointments for blood tests. We'll monitor. Um, so yeah, I sort of, sort of the first six months was just getting my head around everything to understand it all. And the reality for CML patients is this routine of daily medication, yeah. which I don't think is an element that I think members of the public would, wouldn't expect with a cancer diagnosis. So how was that for you to get to grips with? So my second, I believe, second or third appointment, I was still in um, with the first hospital. And obviously we went for a meeting to talk about um, treatment. And it was said to me straight away, right, we're going to use what's called a TKI. Um, we we, we have, currently have two variants. Uh, if I remember rightly, it was Im- imatinib, also known as Gleevec, I believe, or Nilotinib, um, Tsinga. So I was given the information, given a, a, a night to have a sort of read through and then go back the next day for another appointment to talk about what, what I was going to do. And I sort of chose the latter option, which was Nilotinib, because it's it was a newer drug. It had less side effects, which I kind of like the idea of. Uh, it was slightly different to imitinib because it, I believe that was one tablet. The medication I chose is two. The fasting element of that, which um, was hard to adjust to. Um, but yeah, I sort of had a choice, which, which medication is going to save my life. And I chose nilotinib. Have you stayed on nilotinib then for the seven years? Yeah, yeah, I've been on them since the first tablet, yeah, still today. How would you sum up your current situation with your medication and nilotinib at the moment? So I'm, I'm, it's quite timely, actually. Um, I've now started what's, I believe, called the weaning process. Um, when I was first diagnosed and first started taking the medication, I was told that this is a medication you'll take for life. It's going to stabilise the CML and basically get used to it. You're taking it for life. Um, I later found out a couple of years ago that once I hit molecular remission, there's a possibility that I can start reducing the medication to hopefully stop the medication. I had to have two years of this. um, And I remember 2020, um, obviously we all remember that year quite well, it was December and, and ironically, it was my birthday, the 19th of December, I went for an appointment and this was the appointment that I was going to be told, you can start the weaning process. For some 
reason or another, I don't know why, I got to that appointment and there'd been a blip. The whole time since diagnosis, there'd been no blips. Everything's been going very well. So that was quite hard news to take, especially on your birthday, just before Christmas. Um, but then fast forward another two years later, I'm in the position where I can start that process. So that started in November. Um, so I've basically reduced my dose by half. Um, I was taking two two tablets twice a day. I'm now taking two tablets once a day. Um, and this is being monitored uh, by monthly blood tests um, for three months, and then we'll re revisit that decision. So I've had a full month of taking half dose, and I actually went for my blood test on Tuesday last week. Uh, so hopefully should get a phone call from my specialist nurse this week at some point to sort of let me know how that's going. So that's fantastic that you're so happy with the direction that your medication is taking and seven years down the line. Yeah. What are you planning to achieve this year? Does it include free falling from 15,000 feet? Maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing. Join Team LC this year, raising vital funds as well as your pulse rate. We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukemia Care Zipwire or Leukemia Care Skydive to find out more. I know that since those days of diagnosis, since then, you've had a, a change in career direction as well. You're now a, a mental health support worker. So you're really the kind of the person to ask about mental health and leukemia. So for you personally, what were the long-term impacts of your CML diagnosis? I was experiencing other things in my life um, over the last few years that was affecting my mental health. And at that time, the CML diagnosis was that, I would say the um, straw that broke the camel's back. So I had a breakdown. Um, I'll be honest, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of sadness. I, I thought I was dying. At first, um, I'd seen friends, family that had been diagnosed with different types of cancer and the majority of people I knew who was diagnosed with cancer were dying. And so, yeah, the naivety of it, I just thought I was I was going to die and it really affected me and I was quite sad. Um, but at the time I had great support from my friends, my family, um, and I sort of then found myself thinking, right, okay, this is where I am. This is, I can't change this. There's nothing I can do. And I, I, I had this idea of wanting to prove to myself that I was, I was able to still do things. I was still living. And that's where the decision, I, I can't exactly remember why, but I decided I was going to run the London marathon and for those that are runners, it's difficult. But for those who hate running, it's twice as difficult. And although I'm in the army and I at the time and I'm I'm expected to do all this exercise, running is not a passion of mine. I don't enjoy running. It's hard. And I know there are benefits, but I just really don't enjoy it. So it was even more of a challenge for me. And who doesn't want to tick off that bucket list of running the London Marathon? For me, it was something that was 
a big challenge, but also something that if you dedicate yourself to there's, there's benefits and it's going to help me prove to myself that I can do this big physical challenge. I'm not, I'm not getting weaker. I'm not dying. Essentially it was to prove to myself and others that you can do anything with this sort of situation. And that, that marathon, the training pro process was horrible it was training through the winter. It was cold, wet, lonely on the long runs. Yeah, I did not enjoy it really. But the actual marathon, yeah. Yeah, it's all worth it in the end. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I can't think what your, <laughs> your question was. But yeah, it just, when you mentioned mental health, I think of the things that have helped. And that, at that time, that was one of the things. No, that's fantastic. And, and trust me, we will dig into your marathon experience very shortly but while we're on the topic of mental health with your position as a mental health support worker yeah what would be your advice for others living with leukemia and how should they look after their mental health i think my biggest advice is very simple just talk i know so i was i i worked in a environment that was heavily uh, men uh, th th there are fantastic soldiers and sailors and airmen in the in the forces and a female but the, it's majority um of men and i hate the saying and it's 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 used quite often when at that time was man up um and i i don't i don't really like that saying because sometimes it, it it's okay to not be okay and all i would say is my advice is is if you fall over and hurt your knee you tell people sometimes you just need to tell people that you're not feeling great um just just talk tell anybody you feel comfortable telling but i, I mean i i say this to my friends and family and those that i know I, i'm quite passionate about mental health and like we say mental health I, i've always always got time to listen um so have others so just 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 talk and it's okay like men do cry I, i've cried i felt sad i felt happy i've do you know i mean we do have all the emotions um just just talk no a great piece of advice and a, and a really great message to put out there and how your experience with that time led you to the London Marathon as you wanted to prove to yourself as, as this benchmark, as you touched on, that you could do this. So what led you to run the London Marathon for Leukaemia Care in particular then? I was told about Leukaemia Care when I was at the hospital. Uh, um, I want to say it was the, the specialist, I believe it was, that said, if you need some more information visit leukemia care um because i was actually living not far from worcester i believe your headquarters is worcester so it's probably quite well known where i was living at the time so i did i took the advice i googled leukemia care got all the information got the booklets and then i noticed a fundraising side of the website and i thought oh i'm at home i'm on sick leave i want to prove that i'm still living what can i do um and it came up, run the London Marathon on half of leukemia care. And for some reason, I went, oh, okay, I'll have a look at that. Um, and I did, yeah. It just stemmed from there. I remember I was just – there was no 
I wasn't searching to run the London Marathon. It wasn't an idea that I'd had until I'd seen it on your website. And it just grew from there. And I decided I was. I I, I made a phone call. I can't remember who the fundraising organizer was at the time. But it was, I explained why I wanted to do it. And it was, yeah, it was an instant, yes, you can. This is the the criteria that you need to hit and you can join our team and run on behalf of leukemia care. So I did. And that was, I did that in 2016. Um, it was within a year of diagnosis, um, which was quite important to me because I was diagnosed in August, 2015 and I run the marathon in April, 2016. So well within the first year I started training within a couple of months of my diagnosis. I actually remember it was around late November, early December. I was actually hospitalized because I got quite sick. Um, I got a virus and went to A&E, temperature was sky high, had to stay in overnight, have antibiotics. That's only ever happened to me twice since diagnosis. And it was very early on. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of step, um, stopped my training for a few weeks so it was quite difficult um but yeah um that's that's how i found amazing and you spoke of it earlier as a as a bucket list item the london marathon out of all fundraising events you could run you could skydive if someone's listening out there and they're skeptical about it why would you recommend the london marathon out of any fundraising event that they could do I'll be honest, I've been quite fortunate. When I was in the army, I'd done zip lining, I'd done rock climbing, I'd done parachuting, I'd done skiing. I'd done all these sort of other bucket list ideas that people have. And I thought, go big. Like you hear each year, the London Marathon, it's like the biggest running event in the UK, one of the top six marathons in the world. Yeah, just go big. And I decided, yeah, let's do this. And the reason I chose a running event is because, like I mentioned before, I don't like running. I, I don't like cycling. I don't I don't particularly enjoy that sort of cargovascular side of exercise, but I know how important it was. And the reason I say I don't like running, I mentioned because I was always made to do it. I always had somebody shouting at me, you need to get here at this time. Um, but I was in control of this. I was following the London Marathon um, training program. Like I say, I sort of, I followed it as best I could because there was a few weeks where I was off running completely. But yeah, go big or go home. <laughs> That's a great attitude to take. And if there's someone listening who's running the upcoming London Marathon, what advice do you have for them? What tips could you, could you provide? You, anyone can do it. For those that have been there on the day or watched it on TV or ran it themselves, we'll all say that anybody can do it. It's amazing. It is so well supported. You see every single type of person on the marathon. I had the image of all these elite runners, all these keen runners, all the gear. Like I, I did not, this was the first marathon that I did not expect to see what I see. I'd seen it on TV a few times, but for some reason I just had an image in my head that it was all these professional runners and 
the day is just amazing. Like it's, you kind of forget you're running a marathon because you're, you're blindsided by all this support and it's just amazing. And the training is definitely the hardest part. Um, so get through the training, use your training to find things about yourself, um, trust in the training. And then the actual day, the crowd, the support, the sweets, the gels, the water, the Lucasade, that that and the medal. That gets you through the day. The medal, yeah, the free banana at the end, that gets you there. And we've talked already a bit about the winter training and how that sometimes isn't the easiest of tasks to follow through with. So what would be your tips and what would be your advice for those trying to train through this winter? Just stick with it and the hardest, the hardest, the hardest runs that I found were the longer runs. Um, the hardest part of that was putting your trainers on, sitting there on a, a, a I did my longer runs on a Sunday. Um, this just the way the program fell for me and sitting there on your couch or on your chair in the morning thinking, Oh no, I'm about to go and do 10 plus miles. It's difficult. But that's where your mental strength comes into play. And you literally, once you start stepping forward, you, you get there. You 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 rack up the mind. It's just getting out the door. That's the hardest bit, isn't it? Yeah, that that's definitely one of the hardest parts. And I, I, there was there was some runs that I really, really, really found difficult. And I do put this down to joint pain cramps um obviously in the back of my mind i've got cml so i have to listen to my body um but everyone finds running tough those that don't are professional runners let's face it running is difficult um don't be don't be tempted to wrap up warm because after 10 minutes of running you're going to warm up so that's something i learned in the army start cold because you will warm up with exercise, but just enjoy it. Find a podcast, find some music, find a route that keeps you going. Um, and like I say, on the longer runs, and certainly when it's cold, is know that it's going to end. It, it, it does, it, whatever distance you're doing, there, there's, a, there's an end goal. And once you get there, you, they call it the runner's high. You do feel happy. Each each time I reached a different distance, a new distance, it was like, wow, I've got there. And eventually you get to the point where you you do a 15 plus mile run and you think, did I just do that? Because the training's taking you there and it's just having that mental strength to understand and trust that you do get, get to those later miles. And yes, when it's cold, just don't be tempted to wrap up warm because I've made that mistake after about 10, 15 minutes, you're trying to take off your jumper. You've got nowhere to put it. So you're tying it around your waist and yeah, that, that's start cold. That That's my advice. No, a great piece of advice. And obviously having run two marathons for us, yep. that is something that we are so, so grateful for. Each one individually on its own is a feat of effort and dedication. So the fact that you've done two of them for us is um, fantastic. And we can't thank you enough, really.
And in terms of your other interactions with us here at Leukemia Care, you've accessed our hardship fund as well, haven't you? Yeah. So just recently, obviously, we're we're all affected by the current cost of living crisis, the rising bills. Literally, everything is going up. Um, and one of the things that's quite obviously important is those that are living with a leukemia diagnosis. Certainly, myself, we've we're quite prone to viruses and colds, and they can have quite a significant effect. And it's a struggle to keep the heating on. And one of the things I thought is actually, it's quite important that I do. Um, so I sort of, I, I get the the weekly um, updates from Leukemia Care. I, 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 I've featured in the magazine a couple of times and I noticed on this particular email, it was my story again. So I was scrolling through and it mentioned hardship fund and i was like oh what's this um and basically yeah the long and short of it is i applied for the hardship fund sort of saying it'd help me pay my energy bills and it was accepted and i received 250 pound which actually came in quite nicely because my bill had just come and it was quite high i'd just changed provider and so i i moved and changed provider and my bill was sky high because it was an estimation um, and it helped clear that. So, yeah, it was quite timely. And obviously, I'm really thankful for that. And I've just noticed I had an email, I think it was yesterday, that has dead leukemia care. You've been inundated with people um, applying for this um, fund. Yeah. And now leukemia care has a cost of living fund, which actually the public can donate to and to help kind of refill this fund as we as we opened it about two weeks ago and had an, an influx of applications as someone who has personally benefited from this fund in the past why would you recommend that people should donate to it it's just going to help and i know when i first I, I i was very lucky when i was first diagnosed because i was in the the, the armed forces at the time i was on sick leave for I want to say eight to 12 months. And I know because of my career, I was paid still full pay for those eight to 12 months before I went back to work. Um, not many, not many people have that. And for those that are um, not able to work, I mean, the cost of living crisis, then not being able to work and maybe getting statutory sick pay, which isn't a lot of, you're going to help those people um, massively, massively. Nobody wants to be worrying about bills when they're worrying about their own health. And mental health is quite important. And I think as whatever you can give, just please give because it is going to help somebody. Um, yeah, just I just think it's so important because whatever you give is going to build that fund and hopefully continue it'll grow and you'll be able to help more people that's so nice to hear thank you for that dan and what we always finish off with if you had a piece of advice to give to a patient who was recently diagnosed with a leukemia or a blood cancer what would your piece of advice be oh, there's quite a lot of advice maybe but um, no um talk about it 
try to understand it, seek support, seek help. I've, I would say broadly, just don't try not to keep it within yourself. Um, it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel scared. It's okay. These are all expected, but just talk about it. Try and find out as much information as you can. Look on Leukemia Care's website. It really does have a lot of information. Um, ask questions. I, I didn't ask many questions to the specialists at first because I was scared. I didn't want to know some of the answers, but I, just ask. Um, I actually, I actually say I'm quite lucky. And when I say this to people, some look at me a bit side eye, like, but how are you lucky? You've got a leukemia diagnosis. And what I mean by I'm lucky is I've not had to go through intravenous chemotherapy. I've not had to go through any radiotherapy. I've started taking medication or, or it is chemotherapy medication. There was an adjustment period. There were side effects. There continues to be. Um, but I'm quite lucky in that respect. And for those that are or having or going to be going through that sort of treatment, share it with people. Get support from many different people. Just talk about your diagnosis. Help people understand how you're feeling. Again, we'll go back to mental health it is going to have an effect and the more people you talk to, the more support that you're going to get and the more support you get, the, the, the easier you may find um, these tough times. A great piece of advice. Dan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline, on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.